Welcome to Precision Medicine Forum Podcast, chatting with patients, healthcare, industry and research professionals about creating personalized medicines for each and every one of us. Together, we head to the holy grail, mainstream precision medicine. Here's your host, Steve Coldicott. Welcome to Precision Medicine Forum Podcast. Uh, I'm delighted to say today with us we have Dr. Catalina Lopez-Carrera, who is the Chief Scientific Officer at Genome Canada. Catalina, welcome. Yeah, thank you, Steve. A pleasure to be here today. Can you give us a little bit of background? I know you've been you know, in the industry or in this area for, for 20 years or, or more. Um, can you just give us a bit of background about you know, what you've done, where you've been, where you are now? Yeah, it's around uh, 20, almost 23 years that I have been working in the field of uh, genomics. I uh, did my training, uh, master's in France, PhD in, uh, in Belgium, and, and started working initially with biotech companies. Um, so, um, in the year 2000, lots of uh, boom in the bioinformatics world. So, I started uh, my career uh, in the private sector with them. And then very quickly moved to Iceland to work with Decogenetics, a great experience working with this population, with the Decod team. And uh, from there uh, moved to um, the pharmaceutical sector with Eli Lilly in the US and was leading their pharmacogenomics and precision, or as they call it at the time, targeted therapies um, department. (laughs) Uh, So working, introducing the you know, genomic tools and genomic screening and genomic approaches and technologies uh, into uh, pharma companies. A very, very interesting time for pharma, the year 2005, where they were starting to think about the potential of uh, genomics uh, to help them um, advance their products. And then since um, 2008, I moved to Canada and I have been uh, in different roles with different genome centers, as we call them, initially with Genome Quebec in Montreal, and then a few years with Genome BC in Vancouver, and now um, as Chief Scientific Officer with Genome Canada, really leading the investments uh, Canada is doing around genomics, uh, in particular uh, with my expertise in precision health. But also now um, with these roles in Genome Canada, I do apply genomics to other sectors like agriculture, environment, um, but my main focus and, and professional experience is in precision health. So tell us about how it works in Canada. So you say you were, you know, with, with um, BC and you were with Montreal. Is Genome Canada a sort of umbrella organization for those? Or how does it work? Genome Canada is the federal entity that really um, <clears throat> channels the federal funding and interacts with federal government and all the entities at the federal level. And then we have the six provincial genome centers that are... Um, closely collaborating. They're not uh, reporting to Genome Canada, but they're closely collaborating with uh, Genome Canada in that they build the relationship with the provincial governments. They also um, uh, look for matching funding. So that makes a very strong model for us in Canada because we have the federal coverage with Genome Canada and we have really the capacity to go in depth and really know what's happening in each of the provinces in terms of their health uh, care systems. We, uh, at the end in Canada, we have a bit of a fragmented healthcare system with the provinces managing their own budgets. So it's a very, um, very interesting and powerful model with the Genome Canada and the Genome Centers. Where you are now, having been at Decode, having been at Lilly, um, you know, we're very, we, we hear all the time that collaboration is critical for precision medicine, 
you know, to really become a reality. How's your experience in those different, what one might call different stakeholders, how has that played out and, and how does that help you in your role now? Well, that's absolutely critical, Steve. And I think we saw these in Canada in particular during COVID-19. Um, during COVID, I was leading, I was the executive director for the Canadian COVID Genomics Network. And the success of that network, that was a $40 million initiative, the success of that network was bringing together government, bringing together academia, public health labs, so really building a multi and transdisciplinary network. We also had um, lots of support and interactions and collaborations with the private sector. So bringing, again, not just working in silos, but bringing together all these players was an instrumental move and a, and, a, and a critical initiative to help us um, respond to the COVID-19. And so they weren't necessarily working that closely together before COVID? No, no, actually, the, <laughs> it's interesting because, of course, public health labs were generating their uh, genomic data. They were slowly but surely over the past years building their genomic capacity. Academics have been the ones that work with infectious diseases and modeling have been preparing, I, I think, in their data, but there was not much connection between the public health labs and the academic groups, and not much connection between those and the private sector and government. So bringing those, those players around the table and, and having a common goal, and I think the, the most critical component was, uh, as we see not just in COVID-19 and during the pandemic, but we see in general in precision health, we're moving from the challenges we had five, 10 years ago on data generation. It was, it was expensive, it was difficult to generate the data, to now the challenges we have about around data sharing, data analytics. So that was at the core of what we had uh, with um, the Canadian COVID-19 um, Genomics Network, or CANCOGEN as we call it. The biggest challenge was the data sharing among provinces and internationally, and the interactions between public health and academics for the data analytics. Look, COVID was dreadful. I've said this before, and I'll say it again. It was appalling, and continues to be for some. Um, but there, you know, undoubtedly, thick with, with with stories like this, there are some positives that we can glean. You know, small wins like you know remote clinical trials and. Um, you know, these, these new partnerships and what have you. Well, the, these partnerships, are they continuing? Are these organisations continuing to work together now post... I, I, I say post-COVID in the loosest sort of way, really. It's, uh, we know it's still around, but let's call it post-COVID. Absolutely, Steve. And what is interesting is that um, we are now seeing lots of those organisations that initially um, didn't speak to each other very much, now putting together large-scale initiatives and building, uh, like where there's one of those initiatives led by a small company in Canada called DNA Stack, um, that built what we call the COVID cloud, um, where they were uh, really now in this new project, they are developing a federated model for uh, data sharing across the country. So yeah, there is, there is um, of course, there's a lot of learning and uh, there is also the desire to continue working together and the concrete initiatives also that people are, are putting um, to advance uh, those interactions and continue working together. I know you're originally from Colombia 
Um, and I, I gather you are also involved in in doing some work there and in Latin America. What's the you know what challenges do they face in comparison to Canada? Um, you know, there's differences between every country that you know we talk to people from from all over the world, and the challenges are very very varied. Whether it's about reimbursement, whether it's about equity, whether it's you know laws around data or you know access to testing or whatever it might be what are the uh, sort of major challenges that you've found first of all in Canada and, and secondly in Colombia and Latin America that you've come across yeah I think overall Steve we have a, I would say an equity problem with genomics and precision health um, what we see in the biobanks that have been built so far is mostly European and Caucasian populations. We don't see much diversity. We have challenges um, with access to these technologies. And we see it in Canada. In Canada, we have um, indigenous communities that are uh, facing many, many challenges to get access to these new um, diagnostics or these new genomic tools that help guide the treatment or improve diagnosis. Uh, we actually have uh, been funding a project that is a pioneer project in, in genomics and precision health with indigenous communities that's called the Silent Genomes Project. And that project is working on rare diseases uh, with indigenous communities in British Columbia and other regions of Canada. And again, it's breaking lots of these barriers slowly but surely in terms of uh, interactions with the indigenous communities, use of the data, uh, ownership of the data, all the, all the different um, structures we need to rethink basically to work with, uh, with some of the indigenous communities. Um, and in particular for, for Latin America, lots of challenges. Even we saw some of those um, during COVID when they were trying to ramp up their sequencing facilities. And I would say a little bit like we saw in Canada and around the world, basically with COVID, genomics was uh, really getting out of the lab and showing the world that this technology was helping us and having an impact in, in, in everything around COVID, like knowing from, you know, differentiating from the Delta variant and the Omicron variant, all these things. I think in Colombia, uh, in particular where I am from and where I'm following very closely what's happening, and other countries like Chile, Mexico, Brazil, they're making important investments. And that was an eye-opener. COVID was an eye-opener to start making those investments around genomics and consolidating. But the barriers are still many in terms of financial barriers, policy barriers, all the approvals for new technologies. There is also regulatory barriers. There is also societal and education barriers. Lots of the healthcare practitioners in Latin America don't really know how they could use genomics, what the value of precision health and genomics is for their practice. So uh, lots, lots of ground to cover and lots of barriers still. But, but again, I say that COVID really gave us a little bit of an opportunity to start building the capacity. And many countries now are using the equipment they bought to sequence genomes. They're starting to repurpose that in other infectious diseases. They're starting to think about other uh, potentially rare diseases and other um, uses. 
and the people that were trained, in particular um, bioinformaticians, computational biologists. Africa did a brilliant job with the H3 African network in building connections and interactions between different African countries and South Africa that has been leading the, the way in, in genomics. So lots of things happening, um, but lots of barriers. And I think the barriers have, you know, it's not, it's not just about, this is not a problem for developing countries or emerging economies. This is a global problem because all our countries, even Canada, when we say, yeah, we, we are advancing really fast in genomics, we, the UK, you know, the US, advancing very fast, but still having many, many challenges around access and equity um, and diversity in genomics. It's the million dollar question. How do we overcome it? How do we, you know, uh, we, we were speaking before we started recording, for example, about Iceland, you know, a, a population of 350,000 or something so, um, where deco genetics have, you know, been done an incredible job. Um, you know, if we take that as a as a pilot almost and then and then scale it but how how do you actually do that when you have such inequities do you say right let's focus on canada because we are more advanced than colombia perhaps uh, but you but we mustn't forget the world is there no absolutely and and you know it's it just it's just uh sometimes even frustrating to think that Lots of the even diagnostics, biomarkers, um, lots of the data that we're generating is focusing on, on a very small uh, population of Caucasians and, and um, Europeans and North American uh, individuals from a Caucasian descent. So it's, it's, I think it's, it's the shift we need to do and, and organizations, some organizations are trying to do it. We certainly at Genome Canada are thinking more and more about equity, diversity, inclusion. Genomics England, I know they have now a whole new department uh, that is thinking about that, how to bring that diversity. And that, that should be at the core of these pilots. Big, large uh, pilots are being um, implemented. So if you think about Iceland, well, Iceland, uh, is a great pilot, is a great example on, on how you can almost do uh, genomics at a national scale, when you almost have the possibility to sequence an entire country, or at least get the information, infer uh, the information for almost an entire country. And what does it mean in terms of public policy, public health, and, you know, if, if you have the way, um, really the means in terms of data, to um, assess the potential risk of an entire population of having uh, breast cancer, what do you do with that information? Can you just you know, share that information with the healthcare system, share that information with patients? So lots of, lots of questions that I think countries like Iceland that are small and have a universal healthcare system um, could really tackle. And, and those questions go, as I say before, that they go beyond just generating data. We are past now the challenge of data generation. We are not now more into the challenge of yeah, sharing that with whom, when, how, analytics, you know, what is, how can we do, what can we do with that data? What, 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 how in depth we go into the analysis of that data. And um, other countries like the US, uh, Canada, that have more diversity, the UK too, I think it's, it's really um, 
our duty and I think our responsibility to start thinking in a more inclusive um, way about genomics and thinking on how to bring those communities and how to develop tools that are cost-effective and that could be applied and, and increase the access of these technologies around the world. Whose responsibility is that? Does it come down to healthcare practitioners? Uh, you know, does it come, you know, from patients requesting tests, demanding tests? Um, you know, it, should it be at government level? What do you think? Well, this, I think there's a, many, many different levels there. As a funder for, for us uh, at Genome Canada, we believe, we think we have the responsibility to start um, also bringing diversity to the data sets that's a first step because you i mean you can you can give access to new tests and if i develop a test um for breast cancer that was only based on a caucasian population and i try to apply this to uh, the indigenous communities in latin america well the capacity to um predict or the capacity to really assess the susceptibility of those populations is, is really minimum because you, I don't have the right data set. I'm, I'm not starting with the... So I, ca I could give access to the entire community. Um, I could give that test for free, but will that test really um, do the job I need this, this test to do? Maybe not because, because, of course, the test has not been designed with these populations in mind. So I think we need to start... Uh, and the NIH in the U.S. is, is doing um, really interesting work that is not, because it's not just about the data sets, it's about your workforce in, in the healthcare, when, when you have a much more diverse workforce, when you have a much more uh, inclusive workforce, then you start to think about those nuances. You start to think about the data sets. You start to think about including these communities. You start to think about educating the communities are different. You start you start to think about including patients um, in 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 the work you're doing. So, again, is a very um, well. It's a, it's a huge challenge we have, but is um, it has to be tackled at many many different levels. Tell me um, the difference in data sharing laws and you know the general sort of consensus around the sharing of data, patient data. Um, around the world is is vastly different by country what's what's the what's the deal in canada is it quite straightforward or are there a lot of barriers oh many many barriers and challenges around data sharing yeah <laughs> and, and, and i have to say oh, no. we, we we clearly saw these um as uh, during the cancogen initiative during covid19 in our project around genomics we our goal was to sequence 150,000 viral genomes. Um, and well, actually now we sequence 430,000 genomes. So we more than doubled the target that we initially had. That's great. As I say, data generation was not a problem. We could generate that data. We could sequence across the country, but then all the sequences were kept in little silos in each of the provinces and each of the public health labs. We had initially um, challenges to start sharing that internationally and slowly but surely we started to um, share with um, international databases like GSET that was driving uh, how um, SARS-CoV-2 uh, genomic data was shared across the world. 
But then we had the challenge also of sharing internally in Canada so that uh, academic groups uh, and even industry could have access to that data. And we had to um, actually decided to build a um, SARS-CoV-2 data portal to push the boundaries uh, on data sharing. And that, I would say, is almost like a opening a can of worms. Like that, that initial project opened like so, it, might, it make really evident many, many of the barriers we knew existed in terms of um, some of the real challenges we have around uh, potentially um, privacy and security that have to be covered, but also uh, some of the perceived challenges there are. So in, in, in the case of SARS-CoV-2, we agree in Canada to share minimum, and, and globally, I think the agreement was to share minimum metadata. So you share the sequence, but you don't share that much clinical information or personal information about the patient, just the minimum in terms of what that person is located, uh, when the sample was collected, when the sample was sequenced, so that you can get a sense on how the virus is moving and how um, really, um, well, what type of variant you have at what point, point in time uh, and where are you located. So all that uh, was agreed international as part of international standards. But in some cases, even that minimum metadata was a challenge. And not because it was a real um, privacy or security concern, but it's sometimes a perceived, um, you know, th there's a perception also that, oh, we should not share, we should keep these. So it's a lot, of, we actually came out with, with a document on, on the barriers uh, around data sharing. And there were, well, technical barriers. Of course, we maybe didn't have the right pipelines, the right um, computational biologists and bioinformaticians, not the amount, not the capacity of people also. So the right tools, the people um, and the capacity during the pandemic. So technical challenges, capacity, uh, challenges around capacity, uh, also all the ethical, legal, regulatory challenges in terms of data security, data privacy, but there is also the more social and cultural challenges that sometimes are not the ones we speak about all the time, but are real and not easy, not easy to address. But by opening that can of worms, did that mean that people who wouldn't necessarily even have involvement or think about these things suddenly saw this challenge and, and progress has been made or not? Progress has been made and yeah, lots of progress. And um, you know, we are happy to, to see that the needle is moving in the right direction. And you know, we, we're getting to a place where people are starting to see, um, well, and during the COVID pandemic, they, they saw the benefit also, because it's one thing is like, oh, you're requested to put your data in this database, as opposed to, you know, this is a mandatory thing you have to do as opposed to you see the real value of your data being there and you having access to all the other data and your data. So we saw not just uh, people complying and putting the data there because it was the right thing to do, but uh, also seeing the value on getting access to the data and seeing, you know, getting access to all these other data points and, and, and getting more of a well, a much, much more complete picture of what's happening um, in Canada in terms of these. Now, the challenge is to keep that momentum after COVID-19. Yeah. Because we uh, COVID-19 was, a, of course, a global emergency. 
it's a global pandemic. We were all in panic. So we were ready to do things that maybe in normal life we are not so ready to do. So I think our challenge um, is to use those learnings and those examples and even that kind of worms that we open and try to see, okay, here, these are the other things that we could potentially not fully fix during COVID, but this is maybe the path for us to, um, to really maybe address some of those barriers concretely. And we continue, I, co I continue, I'm, I'm very um, involved with the federal government in advancing um, initiatives and strategies because for precision health and genomics, ways to have and maybe you know we're not th thinking about sharing the data as we thought initially like i send you my data or i send this it's not about placing everything but giving access to the data it could be in a federated model it could be you know uh, but it, having that data accessible um is, is critical so we continue working hard to make sure that we keep that momentum we had that we had with um, COVID-19 and that we build uh, for the future. A very respected scientist said to me a few months ago, um, we were talking about data and, and you know people's reticence to share data, whoever they might be, uh, and he put it like this, he said, you're sharing all the time with Google, with Apple and what have you, and people are quite happy to do that. Uh, but we're talking about literally life or death. Exactly. Well, you know, I, I, I'm glad you mentioned that because that, that was, you know, we say you, you put, uh, you're sharing on social media, you're sharing with Google in every search. Google know exactly what you're thinking, where you live, what your interests said. That's much more than the metadata we were asking on SourceCov2. So it's, we're yeah. happy on one side to go and give everything really for free for and, and not even knowing what we're giving away <laughs> um and it's interesting you mentioned that because we um we went also to do a survey uh to the population here and see um well maybe the privacy officers and maybe the healthcare the, the public health uh, officials are maybe concerned about the population but maybe the population is not that concerned about them sharing their own data what, what I think is, is you know, really the, the place where we should be moving towards is, is really getting back to the individual as opposed to me making decisions here in my office on how much we should share. Like, are, is the population in BC okay with sharing? And it was interesting because that survey so a much greater willingness to share it really? from the individuals okay. themselves as opposed to what we were thinking, you know, we have to... We, we have this duty of protecting the citizens. Well, guess what? If this is a life-saving research and, and initiative, I'm happy to share. And I, I have no reservations. So going on the adage of um, rubbish in, rubbish out, what, were, the, were the questions to that survey critical to the outcome, do you think? I mean, obviously, the, the wording is very important, isn't it? If you're surveying the public about things like this. How did you word it? What sort of questions were put to them and in what context? Yeah, well, unfortunately, for, the survey was something we did towards the end. It was more part of our learning and understanding the barriers. 
but it was not built in a way that could inform the decisions made at the beginning in terms of data sharing. So it is a learning for us for the future right. and maybe a way um, for us to learn how to phrase. But I, I, I agree with you, you know, surveys are tricky and it's not always, you know, the wording and who is your sample because we could sample 4,000 individuals. That's not from, from um, a province, uh, in particular, uh, British Columbia, that was where, where the survey was initially made. And um, 4,000 individuals is really, there's always bias in how you select. So um, there's, of course, you have to take those with a grain of salt, but at least it's a little sign to say, okay, we need to open the eyes and maybe all the restrictions we're putting around these might not represent, it's not, it's not, I mean, it's difficult to conclude. It's impossible to conclude from that because it's, again, small and was not built to be really the tool driving the whole uh, data sharing strategy. So, so here's an idea as we're talking. Um, why not make it like organ donation? You know, so in the UK, you used to have to carry a donor card. But now you don't. I think you have to, uh, and, I, and I, I, st I will stand corrected if anyone tells me I'm wrong. Um, I believe that you have to opt out of organ donation now in the UK. So, so why can we not do that with data? And people can just say, yes, I will. I, I, I'm quite happy to, or I'm not. Anyway, that's I've just I've, I've either changed the world there or I've come up with something completely useless. <laughs> yeah, no, but you know it's interesting, Steve, that you mentioned that because I believe, and I don't know if, if this has changed because I I know there have been many many changes, but one of the very pioneer things that Deco did in the early days was to have an informed consent that was basically open to everything. Once you consented to give your samples to Decode, you had to specifically opt out, I don't want to be in this study or this study, specifically right. stated. Otherwise, you were included in all the studies that Decode was doing. So your sample was collected for everything that was done uh, in terms of, you know, you, you could be part of a cancer study, you could be part of a cardiovascular study, you could be used as a control for other things, yeah. uh, I mean, your sample. So is that concept of universal informed consent where, yeah, like organ donor, you just have to opt out specifically for th things that you don't want, but the, the future, well, the future is data. And, and as we all say, and we can say for years, data is the new oil. Yeah, data is the new oil, but at the core of that new oil is having access to that data. Yeah. It's not keeping the data in a server and keeping the data uh, inaccessible. We're on to the fun bit now. You know a little bit about our, our thing that we like to do at the end of our podcasts. Um, so we call it Forward in Five Minutes for those people who are listening or watching that haven't listened or watched before um so what i'm going to ask you kathleen is to give us your take in five minutes um how we can move forward precision medicine from the perspective of different stakeholders so my recommendation is you try and do a minute on each now some people find that a challenge and go over and then a cut short some people are pretty good at it <laughs> our our internet connection here is pretty good so you're probably going to be all right for, for without a time lag so can you see that timer i do i can i can yes right so i'm going to ask you in five minutes and, I, and i'll stop in between each one so from the perspective first of all of uh let's go with the research community 
what can they do to help push forward precision medicine? Well, I think for the research community, start thinking about data sharing will be critical. Some of them are already in this open data mind, but I think advancing also with the lenses of application and um, having the patient at the core of what they're doing. So data sharing and focusing on, on the application and, and instead of a technology push, technology pull, basically like understanding what are the needs, understanding how the things I'm developing will benefit the patient, will benefit um, our healthcare system. So having that a little bit that mind shift, I think will be critical to help us take some of the things that are being developed at the academic level into um, into the patient. And I will say the other aspect is um, collaboration, collaboration and collaboration, because uh, we clearly know that um, we cannot do uh, precision health and genomics in a silo. It has to be part of a big and larger initiative. Not bad. It's a pretty good start. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, right. Next, then, let's go with industry. Well, industry is such a key player in these. And, and some countries, I will say the UK, have been uh, really forward-looking and really bringing industry and academics to closely collaborate. Um, I think, uh, well, industry clearly is developing tools, is developing um, processes and, and creating great value around the world. And in particular in genomics, we're seeing this big company, well, Illumina being one of them, and, and large-scale companies on the sequencing side that are now um, coming to uh, really more companies appearing, but also on the analytics, AI, machine learning. I think there's such a great potential of companies, in particular for Canada. We have lots of companies now on the AI and analytics side, and we're uh, working on how to integrate those. It's going to be critical. Uh, our capacity to interact with industry in an effective way to bring the value and the real, you know, make real the promise of uh, genomics and precision health. So the role is absolutely critical and I think we need to be much more open-minded and, and proactive in our interactions with the industry. Very positive. Um, uh, next up, let's go with patients and patient groups and what they can do. Well, patience is interesting because it has been, um, even though we do everything in precision health and genomics in principle for patients, because that's the goal, you know, we, we want a better diagnosis, we want a better treatment. Patients have been almost the forgotten voice in precision health. And, and I know we have been talking about including patients, but I think we need to be much more deliberate and much more, um, you know, straightforward on how those patients, it's not just patient organizations, we need to be um, including patients as part of potentially uh, review panels, we have to include patients as part of uh, even the grants that are uh, advancing um, solutions and, and projects uh, that use genomics and to advance precision health. I think the inclusion of the patient voice and inclusion of the patient perspective has to be at the core of everything we do. I think we easily forget, and I see it all the time as a funder, I see all these amazing and great initiatives that come to us for funding that have great potential um, 
and great tools, but completely forget that these tools are for patients and that those patients should have a voice and should be included in, in all those processes. So putting that voice at the center is critical. You're going to struggle here, Catalina. <laughs> I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> two categories. Two categories to go. Okay. So the last two. What have we got? Uh, government and payers. And then what's the other one? Um, healthcare. So what? Why don't we go with? Let's go with health. The healthcare community first of all. Well, the healthcare community. I think biggest. Uh, lots of challenges, but one important challenge is education. I think we need to educate our healthcare providers. That for me would be top number one priority. I live there. Clever. <laughs> okay. Very last. So you've got 53 seconds. Government and payers. Well, key role. Key role. And we say, um, I think we need to bring innovation to um, even um, areas like the regulatory approval. If we develop all these amazing tools and we are not able to innovate in terms of regulation and to embrace all these um, new um, advances, it's not going to be, it's not going to happen. Precision health is not going to happen. And the other one is um, have more clarity and bring maybe forward all these health economic studies that show that maybe initially there is an upfront cost, but long term there is a much more, you know, higher efficacy and potentially cost savings for some of these innovations. So I think bringing the health economics at the core and also uh, innovating in regulatory um, approvals, I think will both are critical. Okay. Very good, excellent. I, li I like the line about the, um, the health economics because I've had that discussion so many times with people about how do we, what, uh, who is it? I mean, you know, there's health economists all around the world doing great work on this. Who is it that finally convinces a government or governments that yes, it's a huge investment up front, but actually for, for the long term, it's, it's, it's the way forward. Exactly, exactly. So and we need those models. And I think one of the challenges for those models is that in particular in Canada, we have those models done uh, in a hospital or in a province, but we need to aggregate the data, again, aggregate the data and look at those models in a more, like think about rare diseases. If we could have global data on the impact of genomics in rare diseases, the diagnostics, the increase of efficacy of your diagnosis, the reduction of cost and the re reduction in time for diagnosis, I think those at a global level will make a huge difference for governments. Lovely. Look, it's been lovely talking to you, really interesting. Um, and, th and thank you so much for your time. Well, thanks to you, Steve, and uh, it was fun. It was fun. Thank you. That was Precision Medicine Forum Podcast. Visit precisionmedicineforum.com to get all the show resources and find out about our upcoming episodes and events. And please subscribe or follow on your podcast app so you never miss an episode.